you find your stream of creativity to flourish in and choose to follow your flow, it can lead to a realm of fascinating thoughts and ideas. In this episode, my friend Yulia talks about that creative stream in her life. With an innate desire to create, to discover and understand the connections between art, philosophy and psychology. The artist part is to uncover or kind of recall the beauty in the world and express that on the canvas. And it becomes almost like the key that you could use for the viewer to open that door and to see that. I'm Anthony Stoker. I design shoes, write letters, and this is The View From A Shoe, where we explore the creative journey, a metaphorical walk, one guest at a time. Yulia is an accomplished artist with a career as a portrait painter and a PhD in psycholinguistics. We talk about her journey so far, from growing up in Russia to her ongoing love of research and her influences and inspirations along the way. I began the conversation by asking Yulia about her earliest memory of shoes. I was, as you know, I was born in Russia in 1980s, so it was still a Soviet Union. And my first memory of footwear, it was boots, specifically Russian winter footwear. I, I think it's actually my first memory of myself overall. And it must have been, I'm guessing, maybe three or four. And I remember... To get out, uh, my mother had to dress me in layers of clothes because the winters are, you know, quite harsh. And for footwear, you had something called valenki. And I don't know if you've seen uh, one of those, but it's made out of felt. It's like a booty, almost like a sock. Imagine a sock, very big, big sock. So you had to wear, you know, thick socks and put those uh, valenki. And then over the top of that felt uh, boot went something called galoshi. And galoshi was made out of polished rubber. Uh, and it's almost like a little shoe that went on top. So you basically, when you're walking on the snow, your footwear didn't get wet. It's like a two-part boot that you could dry separately. They were very flexible. They are polished. They're kind of polished black rubber that is a, the top booty and I remember looking at it and seeing kind of vague reflection of myself of my face <laughs> it just stuck you know just stuck in my head but being sort of all dressed up I, I must have looked like a big ball you know because I had the scarf and the hat and then you know a big jacket and several layers and I said even the boots kind of represented the layers of a sort of sock and then felt and then this rubber but another thing I was thinking uh, didn't really bother me as a child, but um, at the time, everyone had the same clothes and shoes. So you would have, so my mom would tell me, so for example, she would have a call from her friend saying, okay, there are some coats for kids in the shop because the shops were just empty. And then at that point, shoes or coats would be released and everyone kind of rushing and buy those shoes or coats 
but they would be the same but different sizes so we grew up wearing the same clothes so my friend who'd be two years younger would be wearing the same shoes just different size you know we would have coats like there would be a blue and a pink autumn coat and the boys would wear <laughs> the blue and the girls would wear the pink it sounds crazy it sounds really crazy now that you think about that but it was a very um yeah we were all dressed the same that wasn't just a school uniform that was outside of school as well yeah it was everything daily life kind of thing it wasn't just the clothes it was also furniture it was also um tiles in your bathroom <laughs> I don't know, literally everything you'd go to your friend and their bathroom would have the same tiles <laughs> the couch would be <laughs> same as yours it's as it's it sounds sort of uh, surreal and there's a great movie that was made uh, during the soviet times about this guy who uh, got on the wrong plane and uh, uh he had a few drinks celebrating new year and then he gets into uh, another city and he says to a taxi driver i want to go to lenina street and Lenina Street exists in every town in, in Russia. So he got out and he looks at the house and the, all the houses, the flats would, you know, look the same. So he gets into um, this house, he goes into the third floor, he takes up the key and the door looks like his door. So he opens with his key, he opens the door, he gets inside and he's like, oh, my home, this is my, this is my couch. And he falls asleep on the couch. And then an hour later, this girl walks in and she's like, what are you doing? This is my house. And he's like, no, it's my house. Look, it's my couch. (laughs) (laughs) So then it turns into a love story. But it's just to show how... um, What was the the name of the film? I'm going to have to look that up. So I think it's a a celebration of a new year, like Snowlam Gordon, which is like Happy New Year, Happy New Year. And everyone, all, all the Russians watch it, and uh, it's a kind of tradition that they watch it. It's a comedy, and everyone watches it at, on the 31st of December or 1st of January. So did the fact that everything looked the same make you want to be creative and make things look more personalized in each house? I think so. Um, in a way, later on... Um, I kind of almost went into, once we could buy in Russia, moved in from the Soviet sort of planned distribution of goods into different, um, I almost, I remember going for things like I didn't want to look like everybody else. You know, you almost went into this, this swing to, to look different. You know, I wanted to have, you know, different shoes. I wanted to have clothes that wasn't the same as everybody. But also I think my mum she could make us clothes so she would say you know she'd take her old trousers and then she'll cut them up and make us some I don't know skirts or dresses or she would knit she would crochet so so people did try and kind of break up that you know (laughs) the monotony yes exactly yeah and I think I I was born to into a family of um my dad's side of the family are all uh, artists so they either paint or they work in mosaics and sculpture and that I suppose we had we had we had artworks in our house and my mom's side of the family there were, there were several musicians um 
So I, I, di I didn't feel like it was this, at the time, it didn't feel like <laughs> there was anything wrong with that. <laughs> you know, it felt kind of natural. And, um, and I think there's so many other ways of, I suppose, be creative. And I'm sure people did find um, ways of expressing themselves and, and doing things. Music and arts are generally very, very popular in the Soviet Union, I'd say. It, it's such a, um, a human characteristic, like it's such an innate desire to create that I was thinking, well, my parents, my dad used to, we had this Russian car called Neva and he took it apart, like took it completely apart and then put it back together. My mom, she really loves gardening and she like, we would rearrange the furniture around the house. I don't know how many times. She was constantly like uh, arranging the space around her and I'm the same. And my sister loved dressing up like from a little girl. She'd like cut up these bits of fabric and kind of weirdly sew them together. And she's still like her wardrobe was amazing. And she has all this like things all match. And for the joy of it, you know, for creating this beauty and order in their life, be it flower arrangement or hair or whatever that is, to me, it's almost like everybody's kind of an artist. You know, everybody's creative. The way I work is that I see imagery. I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but if we'll be talking about something um, like a situation, I, 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 I have images coming to my head. And in a way that creates almost like a queue of, <laughs> queue of images that are waiting to get out of my system. Um, and if it's too many of them, <laughs> it sort of gets a little bit crowded in, inside my head. You know, I just kind of need to, need to get them need to get them out but I always I was always attracted to visual aspect of life do you remember having those cues of images even when you were three or four years old or I know that I I did draw well and I, I knew that like my great uncle was a, a very good painter and he um, would come and spend some time with me and he would say to my mom you know she can see colors that not everyone necessarily would see you know the in the sunset, she would see colors like green, which most children would say, oh, it's orange or, you know, sort of yellow colors. So he was complimentary in saying, you know, she could, she could probably take it up as a, as a profession. And I always just really, I don't know, I was really attracted and I felt that I could express something that I wasn't necessarily as good at expressing in words. Uh, and as I said, because it felt natural and just felt uh, enjoyable, to me and I had this sort of family surrounding that was encouraging to that sort of occupation it felt just a kind of natural flow of life. So you were you were painting already and, and drawing at home anywhere before before you went to school or anything like that I guess? Yes there was a sort of a, a, a difficult decision again going back to the conditions you know in Russia in 90s where the state fell and there was no support for arts Prior to that, what used to happen is that if you, if you went to university and you qualified as an artist, you were given a studio by the state and you were given a salary by the, by the state. So there was no commercial art as such. There was no structure for commercial art. When that sort of fell apart and there was no more money available to support artists, then all of a sudden, you know, the question of, as I said in early 90s, is how do you support yourself if you want to do art? There is no commercial sort of infrastructure of, you know, galleries selling art and 
you, you know, none of, none of that existed. And there was generally in the difficult times like we're experiencing now, there's less and less funding available for artists and for, you know, uh, private, again, acquisitions. So my parents were kind of keen on me doing something else other than art, as well as art. They were supportive of the idea, but it was a scare, like it was kind of... I think there's always that um, fear for parents with their kids. Any of the arts, it's kind of like, well, are you going to make any money? Yes. I said I was somewhat lucky. I was sort of fell into the stream as a child and it just kind of carried me, carried me through life in terms of just, you know, doing what I, I enjoy doing. Did you do a, an art type degree in Russia? So I studied with, um, and there is a um, kind of number of ways you could do, you could study art in, in Russia and it kind of exists in Europe as well, but you can do uh, a traditional degree or you can do almost like an atelier uh, style degree or you're, you're attached to an artist. One of my great teachers, his name is, his name is Zaitsev Yevgeny. He was a um, well, kind of, Equivalent, I suppose, the Royal Academic, Royal um, sort of painter uh, in, in Russia. And he had a studio. And between my uncle and my other artists that were surrounding me, I could kind of acquire the knowledge and training that was necessary. And you kind of had to practice as well. You couldn't just study art and art history. You had to uh, have a certain number of hours of like practical, you know, cast drawing and and that, that was kind of under the tutelage of the mentor you just mentioned. Yes, yeah. So you need to have a, like a studio that you are attached to. So but I was studying, I was studying at university. You take like a, um, an overall course of like philosophy and Russian history. And, and then you can choose other subjects as well. And I did linguistics and um, did psychology. Um, so it just was kind of, it was quite intense <laughs> altogether, but it allowed me to have, like, to do art, but also to do other things. So you did the, the psychology and the linguistics before you moved to the UK? Yeah, and I, I actually, I wrote a PhD. I don't know if you know, but I wrote a PhD in psycholinguistics. So my interest was how do people choose the right words? So painting is the same in the way it's a language. So how do you choose the right images to, to express certain ideas? And language, you know, just the language is very similar to pictorial language to me. And therefore, what lies underneath that, what are the processes that are happening in our brain in choice of, you know, symbolic words or symbolic images? You see, this interesting fact is that even though I'm an artist, you'd say, well, how's that relating to what you're doing? But okay, so the picture of how do we use different words is a little bit clearer with languages and more studied than uh, a language of arts. And how do we choose, you know, symbols and how do we choose to express, like, how's that process of getting the images out and to other people work? So in a way, it's kind of very similar. And so there's two different languages. So um, I just thought that area was kind of was a bit more developed and will, for me, make me understand how does that work with art <laughs> as well. So when you moved to the UK, you were studying at the National Gallery, a lot of the, the classics. 
Yes. Which is when I first met you. Um, yes. So was that the time that you were kind of tr- trying to learn about the language within paintings? So what happened when when we moved to uh, when I moved to England, um, I was finished with that study um, or that thesis in maybe 2007, 2008. So it's just as I moved, it was like a year that was left of my studies. And then I started, you know, I was painting and I um, did portraiture mainly, um, which is kind of, I think, my first love. And I just, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by people and uh, human condition. I work with three mediums. One is oil, uh, another one is wax or encaustics and gold or gold leaf. And what I was interested at the time is that the most famous names in, in oil painting are around maybe 16th, 17th century, or they could kind of the big names, uh, you know, like Rembrandt that we associate with the golden age of oil painting. And what was interested in is, so how do you, uh, out of this pigments and oil and solvents and canvases, how do you create something that would last that long? Because we have these paintings, you know, they made it through uh, centuries to us. So I spent four and a half years kind of rebuilding and researching, going through restoration notes for this almost kind of, um, not a secret, I don't think it's a secret, but it's what what is it that these artists use that makes made a long lasting painting? Were the notes left by the the Rembrandts of the world as well, or were they written by other people that have worked alongside them? Or it's a com- it was a combination. So every every piece you would have most of the time you'll have some kind of historical uh, uh, information. So whether it's the letters or um, some account from the artists on their work. Often there will be correspondence saying, okay, well, I'm, I commission you this and I'm going to pay for five ounces of lapis lazuli and uh, of that much gold and that much, you know. So it will be a, a, a sort of a data on what pigments they, they use. There's also um, a lot of information available from National Gallery in terms of like restoration notes and they take samples of what was used, what type of canvas, um, you know, did it have any uh, damage to to the painting, also restorers sort of information, because during the World War II, really is when they started doing the restoration of paintings, as we know it now, and then kind of uncovered the the colours that were under the very dark varnish. The collection was split into several collections and and distributed around the UK so that if there were any bombings, they wouldn't destroy the whole collection. <laughs> a very famous uh, restorer, Professor Ruman, he would travel from one location to the other. And then after the war, all these paintings came back to National Gallery with the newly uncovered colours, you know, just those bright blues that were before, as I said, um, covered with a darker varnish. So some of that information would be available. So it's kind of like you're trying to piece a picture for each each painting to find out what went into it. And and my conclusion was really that um, the simpler the formula, the better. Didn't seem to have any magical uh, mediums, no magic potion that went into into these paintings that are 
in a very good condition um, still. It was really helpful to also to get out of the comfort zone because I come from a you know, realistic school and, and the Soviet Russia has a particular look, has a particular set of, again, paint, uh, working methods. So I think it was a great opportunity to get myself out of the, the kind of that set, a number of techniques, <laughs> put it that way, and, uh, and learn from these old masters. You were saying that the paintings went to different areas of the countries, of the country to be, to be kept. Were you saying that they were all also worked on and restored in each of the different areas that they went to? Yes, yeah, I believe that's the that's the um, true story. So when I moved to England, I, I started start also studying with a, an artist called Rosa Branson, and she was trained uh, by Professor Ruman, um, who came. He came during the, perhaps just before the World War II uh, from Germany because he was Jewish, so he's kind of trying to escape the, what was happening. And he was the first, I believe, to start to introduce um, a new sort of technique of removing uh, varnish that is a, really a final stage of any painting. It's a, it's a varnish that has usually resins in it, and there is a way with time it yellows significantly. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, 100 years. He introduced techniques of taking that varnish off so that you could see the original colors. And that's what he was doing or he was occupied with during World War II is to go into, you know, to Wales and then working on the paintings that were there and then go to another location and, and sort of restoring them, not just the uh, work with varnish, there's a, they uh, support the canvases, they do, loads of other work but yes that was the kind of work didn't stop and there, there was a um a cohesive technique being done in each area around the country they weren't all just kind of doing their own thing you could tell if something was restored in the northeast as opposed to the northwest as opposed to no i think it was i think it was the same team that that worked on them so they just they were traveling they were traveling restorers <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know so um, but in a way as I said it feels like I'm in my art career I'm going backwards in time in the sense that I started as I was trained by you know the artists that were working in Soviet you know Soviet realism and very much still influenced by the impressionism and you know the colors are blues and yellows and oranges what we think of impressionistic palette and then I went into like 16th century. Whilst I was looking at these images and kind of working on, I suppose, like a technical side of them or the craft side of them, I, in a way, realized that that wasn't deep enough. <laughs> you couldn't get any deeper than the, you know, than the, the, the layer of paint. But to me, it felt like, apart from all of this kind of like a potion, you know, that went into this painting, there was something that was, extra you mean deeper in a, in, in, a, in a meaning sense or in a spiritual sense I, I think both in the in the meaning and in this in the spiritual um aspect of what makes um a long-lasting artwork you know what what would it take for the artwork to talk to people not just today but you know in the 
200 years and 300 years and however long it can last, you know. So what would uh, sort of ensure longevity of that ETH? And in a way, that led me to then start looking and kind of I said, I'm kind of going back in time and I started looking at like medieval artworks and because they're so dramatically different from what happened later development in, in art and what went into creation of those, you know, into those images. What was the, um, the catalyst to start looking at the medieval art then? As I mentioned, I, like, I'm really fascinated by, by people and the way, uh, the way people are represented in art. And when we lived in England before moving to the um, US, 90% of my work would be portrait commissions. And um, some of them, the, the Painter Stainers Guild. Um, and it was a wonderful job or wonderful thing to do because I got to meet a variety of really, really interesting uh, people who had uh, amazing careers and in and, um, and a variety of industries and, and um, areas of human, <laughs> human endeavors. So I was looking at a lot of imagery of of people and how people were painted and from renaissance you can really see a clear connection to the the contemporary art and and some of like the hyper realism that we get now which is almost a copy of a photograph the artist became more and more concerned with how do you represent someone realistically so as i said from maybe 15th 16th century you can see this kind of a, a trail of attempts to make it more and more <laughs> realistic, <laughs> um, which led us to where we are. But medieval art, which is very much based around the human form, or when we're talking about European art, uh, so you have portrayal of uh, human human form. So mainly it's religious painting, but it maintains some realism. We still recognize that there are people, <laughs> but there, there is more than that. So there's kind of a, a marriage of two sides. Christ is the son of uh, God, but it's also, uh, you know, he's also human. So you have these two sides of a, of a soul and a spirit coming together. And to me, in a way, reproducing just the, the likeness of the sitter is never enough. Is, well, to give you an example, you've seen some photographs of yourself where you say, there's nothing like me. And of course it is you, you know, it's your nose, it's your, it's your forehead, it's the, the exact sizes and dimensions, but it's not, it's not. Um, Capturing the essence. Yes. So I really became sort of fascinated with this idea of how do you capture that essence or that charisma or that spirit, there's many words, to express that. And the only period that I could see that did that within this, in, again, European art boundaries that try to go or went past the you know the likeness and and it's also interesting you can't really say that well they didn't know how to paint someone realistically because there's greek and roman art and there's for you mean portraits that are done very very realistically prior to that so they were just after something different basically well a lot of uh people might not know about people like picasso and and Van Gogh and people like that that actually were 
brilliant at drawing people to uh, to the perfect proportions to to an almost like photographic accuracy, but they wanted to take it further and try and capture more of a character and a yes, yeah, absolutely, and and uh, you know there are many different sort of terms or the way people talk about this or the artists in the past, whether they try and, and capture something that, you know, called archetypes by Jung's, you know, according to Jung's theory, that the, there's been many um, attempts from different artists or um, many, I suppose, approaches for, from different aspects of human, human life or theories that we, or philosophies that came at the time. So one of my uh, Russian teachers uh, in art, he always used to say, you have to really fall in love with, with your sitter so that you capture what's good about them. You know, translate that your, your feeling about that person onto canvas. And how, how, do you, how do you do that? Like, how do you fall in love with somebody, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you don't necessarily know that well? And then how do you give them that life on the flat piece of canvas. He also said, you have to show the, the past and the present and the future. And it's sort of been a mystery, kind of my, uh, something that drives me forward in a way. So how, how do you, how do you, you know, how, 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 could, how could I achieve that on the, on, on the canvas or on a, on a piece of paper? Um, so really it's been, in my in and I think once so we have five-year-old twins and when the girls were born it kind of became a really sort of something that before was at the back of my head and now became really really important for me because I wanted to really as I said wanted to paint people like that but I realized I don't quite know how to get there <laughs> so in a way I've started first working with uh, like a landscape and and looking at how do I take that memory of a landscape or this feeling of a landscape and then turn it into something, just the essential qualities of it. By the sounds of it, you're not sitting in front of the landscape, but you're actually working on the memory of the landscape that you saw at a previous day, a previous week, rather than sitting in, in front of it and painting it at the, at the time. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm writing this time PhD in philosophy of art and it's focusing on medieval medieval philosophy and portrayal of people. So reading authors like St. Augustine, who was a his kind of early church father uh, figure, um, he raises a lot of interesting questions um, that, for example, where do the images come from? You know, what is knowledge? Is knowledge as a memory? of something that you access that already exists and you just have access to this information he was he was influ like influenced by plato and latinus but he kind of interpreted them in a different way and the way he writes is very personal it's like as if he knows or kind of he has access to uh, what he calls it, you know, a God, a Christian, Christian God, or like spiritual world. And he sort of debates and his works are dialogues, or like not dialogues, but like kind of questioning of, of, of truth. So it made me really think is, so how do I know where these images come from? How do I know, for example, that 
when I'm painting somebody, it's not exactly replicated. Still, every time every artist paints the same person, they come out slightly different. And if you paint in something that is a, like a narrative painting, where do these images come from? So there's almost like an access to an information that exists somewhere, perhaps. I don't know. Um, so I've started, as I said, almost like testing my, um, not my memory, but like trying to um, call on the, the emotions and the feelings and the visual detail that I had of that moment. So if something sparked my interest, usually there, there is a reason for that. Um, and then when you come back and you have, a, you have a canvas, you just try and kind of pour it out. Would it be right to kind of say that you're almost trying to paint what your subconscious was storing? Yes, you could, yeah, you could say, yeah, you could say that. Uh, and it's, there's many words to describe it. Like, is it your feeling of it? Uh, or is it the, the memory, you know, that's stored somewhere? Uh, or is it your subconscious that has other information than that? And, and also, I think what I've learned to do is to almost trust the medium to be more um, fluid. So I work, as I said, with oil, but I, I sort of develop this technique where it becomes very fluid and it's on the easel. So a lot of time it just won't run, you know, it would just pour down. And I use hot wax, uh, which again will, will kind of has a certain, you know, you apply it, but it keeps, it keeps going. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't stop, it changes the shape. So I've started to allow the, the, the medium to do some work, which is kind of in, unpredictable at times. And, and sort of come come together in in the end result this might be an odd question but <laughs> i'm just thinking that if if you're trusting uh or relying on your emotions and your the ideas that you had from what you saw on a different day or a different time do you sometimes paint with your eyes shut uh i i don't I still have to, <laughs> yes, in, in a way, <laughs> well, with my... Uh, I thought you were saying, yes, that is a stupid question. <laughs> Maybe with the other set of eyes open. <laughs> it's a very interesting, actually, process. It's very hard to describe, but you kind of become more removed. So if with the painting I used to do before, I was very close to the canvas, we're now more, like, I'm more removed from it. I can see it clearer uh, or what is happening but that doesn't mean in a way that some people will think well it's kind of going into you know abstraction and it's going away from the reality I, I feel like there's two different exercises you know I go and paint um, luckily the weather apart from the last two weeks so it was, was it's always great here so I paint plain air I paint um, portraits from life every week to practice because that's my practice that's building my vocabulary my you know my hand to eye coordination it's it's like an exercise that you have to maintain to be fit <laughs> to be fit for painting is, is there one that you enjoy more than the other i think as i said it's like two different two different exercises completely and you, you need the two to be balanced in in a way yeah i think i think both are important just taking you back to what you were saying about the images that would come to your mind and almost be in a queue 
has the energy or the kind of the essence of those images changed since you've started painting in a different way? So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, so each of those images will have a different energy or different, to give you an example. So when something happens or if I see something, as I said, I, I have a picture, I sort of a picture comes up in my head and I can choose to go in and it's very, it's very vague at the beginning, just an overall, like a blurred image. I can see the colors and I can see the light and the darker areas, but it's very blurred. And then I can choose to go into this picture and kind of start to explore it and see it in more detail. Like your own little iPad. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's almost like, you know, you go into, into this. Um, sometimes these images, so to give you an example, the other day I was painting in the plein air, there's a beautiful bird refuge in Santa Barbara. And you're looking, I was looking at the ocean past this lake and, and the trees. And then at the end, I turn around and uh, it's all very well sort of maintained. It's beautiful, very well organized. And then I look to the right and I see this huge palm tree that stood up more than anything else. And it must have been in the territory that is not kept. So it, you know how the palm tree grows? It, it, the leaves that dry up, you have to trim them. So there you've got, you've got a nice palm tree with and then just a green top. But that one hasn't been, hasn't been maintained. And yet it towered over everything, that kind of manicured, human-created landscape. So when I looked at it, that, that was like, the, that's the, the sort of a, the trigger. And I was like struck by like the, just the magnificence of it, the fact that you don't have to keep it, you know, nice and tidied up as much as we try and kind of organize the nature around us. And, and just generally just the light that, I don't know, it just stayed with me not in exactly the photographic form but then I, I went home and I painted it the colors are not realistic the but the the kind of the serene moment and like this towering composition of this huge tree above everything above everything else a different type of energy my my father recently had a um, heart operation and when I learned that he will be having that you can imagine he's absolutely fine. Everything is great. But I had a, um, it was just really difficult time. Do you feel emotional? You feel, you know, is it going to go well? You know, how long do we have together? And uh, so we had, a, we had a holiday, just the two of us. We went to, um, went to Spain and I had a wonderful time. And then when I came back, I painted this picture of, of my dad and I lying in the snow and doing the kind of like a star, you know, the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the snow angels or the star angels. And that has a completely different energy from the palm tree. There are some images that are not, not happy. Their reaction to, I don't know, news, reaction to um, situations that happen that I don't even want to get at. like I don't want I don't want them to take the physical form in, in the way so each of these images they will have different um, emotions yeah they will have different emotions they'll have different life of their own and also the people you know who look at them there's a there's a viewer side as well they often will have different response to to the imagery that they then live with when you said that I was thinking about the observer and the observed because you sent me the link to that amazing documentary mm -hmm. uh infinite potential yes uh -huh. 
which I think I've watched maybe 15 times now. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Honestly, I, I can't get enough of it. Some of it's quite difficult to understand, but it's, mm. it's, you know, it gives you something a little more each time you watch it. But yeah, I was just thinking when you were saying about the experience of painting a painting, there's the experience that the viewer or the your guests get when they view your painting. And it's kind of that whole different, um, the connection is, is, is a different thing, even though the painting is, is the same. You have a different connection and a different language, I guess, mm-hmm. that you get from that experience between, between the two. Well, um, just to go back to the that documentary, he, uh, Dave Bohm also wrote a, a wonderful book on it's called on creativity. It's a very interesting, as said, particularly for, for me, uh, on his thoughts because he's a physicist and he draws and and kind of really says that this creative process is the same for any, you know, you could be a physicist, you could be, um, you know, a, a painter, you could be a musician. But that the same process, and it's very interesting the way he describes it. And fundamental to that, I suppose, to his writing and his work is this idea of beauty. That uh, when physicists write uh, or create a theory, and their final goal is a beauty and harmony. You know, when the equation works, it creates a sort of a balance. You know, it creates and all the equations that the main kind of idea is that all the equations in the world work together, you know, so that we have this unified uh, vision of, of, of our world. And often and, and sometimes they don't. So then the physicists, you know, uh, scientists spend a lot of time trying to marry different theories together again in their attempt. And, and this idea of unity and, and beauty and harmony is kind of central. I think not just to Western civilization is. And uh, another great writer, Ananda Kumraswamy, he was a specific art philosopher who wrote on this. And like I said, the relationship between the artist, the artwork, and then the, the viewer. And his idea is that the artist part is to uncover or kind of recall the beauty in the world and express that on the canvas and it becomes almost like the key that you could use for the viewer to open that door and to see that to see that sort of a underlying harmony or a spirit or you know again different writers use different uh, versions of that but so it doesn't exclude the personal experience or connection to personal events you know i have children so therefore maybe looking at pictures and photographs and books about children you know this this really is <laughs> is my thing right now but um but that's still as i said at different times at different times in our life and um it, we have these keys you know we have these sort of portal doors that we can use to access the harmony and the art, the beauty that underlines underlines our nature or underlines our world and i think to me it's a very um I don't know, I find it very inspiring. You wrote something on your website. I think we are at the end of the period of withdrawal of participation from our spiritual side and from nature. And we are about to swing back towards 
seeing ourselves as part of the whole. I thought that was, I thought that was really nice and kind of spoke to a lot of the um, elements of, of, the, of that documentary and of so many things about art and creativity that I really appreciate as well. Well, one author who describes it very well is Owen Barfield, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien. And he talks about how in, in cultures we see these swings of like being really, really aligned with nature and being part of it and then withdrawing into more kind of egoistic, self-centered um, world. And he describes it as a sort of a pendulum, you know, it swings back and forth. I don't know if you agree with me, but even like five years ago, there were not as many um, businesses and kind of individual almost enterprise that supported our sort of healthier relationship with nature. I mean, I'm judging it by, I moved to the States four years ago and now our household um, pretty much use all the natural products from hair that has no packaging, uh, well, it has cardboard packaging, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have plastic. You can find clothes for children that's organic cotton, you know, made uh, locally. So there are, there, there, are many, there are many enterprises that didn't exist, as I said, to me, it feels like even five years ago that uh, kind of saying to us, okay, well, we have, to, we have to wake up and we are part of this ecosystem and we, we have to find the ways and be creative too to stop producing waste, we have to sort of get back to collaboration rather than uh, sort of consuming to incredible rates. I would totally uh, agree. Over the last year, I've reconnected with, with a few people from my past, from school and from college and other people I've met that have started businesses or have been running businesses for quite some time now that are all based around nature. One girl I went to school with, she teaches foraging now um, and all self-sustainability based on, on nature and what's around us. I was listening to a fascinating podcast with the founder of The Fiber Shed, which is a, a lady in, I think it's in California. And she spent a year where she was, she was only using ingredients and plants and materials from within the Californian region to make thread that would make her clothes, that would make everything that she wore, everything that she ate, everything. So that her whole life was only using materials and, and from within a region that was California, well, even smaller than California, I think. Um, so she's set up this company called Fibershed and one of the girls I went to college with has set up a Northeast England version of the fiber shed. Mm -hmm. So many of these stories that are about being at one with nature and having the respect for nature and integrating our lives with nature rather than abusing nature. There are projects that I'm seeing in art. They were making a rug out of, um, it was like a community project out of uh, old t-shirts, you know, they, they make like a sort of a string and then, but everyone was invited invited to participate and they were making this kind of spiral big rug that everyone will sit on it and then kind of be together. I think for such a long time, we had this idea of personal view of the beauty. 
I hope that we'll see more and more that this experience of beauty is universal. So we might find different things beautiful, but the experience is an underlying human condition. So therefore, it's more kind of a unified vision of it rather than sort of a separate each for his own his own thing. But also, I think um, in this whole, like even my my transition, you are part as well, because like your philosophy of making things last and uh, i mean it just as said to me it's kind of all, almost a, always a puzzle that it fits together that and when we met i just we just had the girls so that's what i'm saying like that path that just started off and you were one of the one of the um ideas that i came across that helped me to formulate again my um, my 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 vision for things that will will be with you for a long time and the artwork is I constantly think of this idea, how can I make it last long? How can I make it, you know, that's my desire as an artist for it to have a long life. Which goes back to your, the research you did on the, uh, the techniques of Rembrandt. That was all about learning the, or understanding the techniques in a, in a, in a sense of longevity. And, and meaning, you know, something that has not just, um, so recently I started looking at, this is my kind of, not, it's not a project, but it's a sub project in my head. I was thinking, I started looking at uh, uh, Russian traditional clothing and thinking, well, the things that I wear, how much does it represent who I am? Can I make something? I started making clothes for the girls. They're my like trial, trial run <laughs> models. <laughs> so, and, uh, uh, and how can I wear something that has some, some, some sort of meaning? you know, to me as a person? Does it show my roots? Does it show, you know, the fabric that I'm wearing? Uh, does it, where does it come from? And as a natural fabric, you know, it's all these, all these questions that I feel like many people around the world having a similar, similar experience. It makes the, the, the process of, of purchasing something makes the choice that you make more valuable because then it has that connection to the values that you're that you're making in that choice and because they become associated with your values then automatically has a longer life to it or you want to you want it to have a longer life because of the fact that it represents an element of you hmm. yes absolutely yeah i think it's very exciting times and um that we are in right now there will be re readjustment. I read on your website, you were, I don't know whether it's a, a short-term plan, mid-term plan or long-term plan, but that your book idea? Yes, yeah. So um, right now, I'm only one year into um, my thesis. At, so I'm writing a PhD at an amazing organisation called the Princess School of Traditional Arts in London. And I would love if it could turn into a book at some point. <laughs> All of these uh, ideas or images that I've been looking at and what I've, I've learned uh, through reading and, and looking at contemporary art, because I think we tend to think of things perhaps in isolation. So medieval art, for example, if I say David Hockney, most people will probably not quite put the two together, but uh, to give you an example, David Hockney recently had an exhibition that was inspired by 
something called reverse perspective. And reverse perspective is something you see in icons. Imagine train tracks in, in the real scenario. What you see, the train tracks is kind of running and then disappearing into the distance. In icons, the perspective is reverse. It's pointing towards the viewer or towards the, the, the main character. So in a way, they're using it to point it towards what's important in the picture. So the space is organized not by uh, rules of life, which again are questionable. I'm not going to go into, the, into what we actually see, but um, they actually use to point to what's most important in the painting. So all of these lines, they actually create, they are kind of a device, a storytelling device in medieval art for example proportions of you know uh, a saint versus a person who's praying <laughs> like you know the, the huge to, to a little kind of what we think is not um not realistic so medieval artwork uh are guided by the principle of what the, the narrative rather than realism so uh, david hockney had an exhibition recently where he used medieval composition or structure of medieval painting in his artwork. What I'm interested in is how these standards of beauty or ideas of beauty have changed and transformed and compared to what we have right now. So I would really love to write a book about that. How long is the course, the your thesis? So I have between six and eight years because I'm doing it part time as I'm in California. And um, I have young children and I have a, a paint for, for a living as well. Um, yeah, so we'll see. You, you seem to love the research part of um, your work <laughs> as, as much as the actual painting and the artistic side. And that, that, I, I think that's fascinating because it, it gives your work more depth. You know, it's not just an idea. It has a connection to something else and it has a reason for being. I just wonder where that sense of loving the research as much as you do. Your father's side was very artistic and your mother's side was very musical. Where does the whole research, uh, the love of research come from? I think we all are researchers. We go through quite a lot of... Um, sort of interests and, you know, finding out information and deciding for ourselves what to use and what not to use. I certainly think that most of the artists that I know, they go through a stage, because your practice is very much influenced by your day-to-day -day life. You know, our life changes, so we, we have family, then we, you know, COVID happens, then... Not every year, I hope. <laughs> yes, hopefully not every year. So life change, and then we make certain we make certain assumptions. We read books. We, you know, we, we constantly there is something that's happening there. My my father is actually an engineer, so he's not he's not an artist. He is very analytical, I suppose. And then both of my parents have MA. Yeah, they have MAs. So that perhaps just knowing that if you do something like this. It's not just you, but there's also other people who will help you along. To give you an example, the Princess School of Traditional Arts, and there's an amazing team there who, uh, like Emily, who's my supervisor, or, um, 
she leads the research team, she will recommend me books. You know, she will help me and I'll come up with the idea and I say, well, what do you think? So to me, this is like my team, <laughs> you know, they're on my side. And most of the time, what we have, we have friends, you know, you recommend me a book and I recommend you a book and you have like-minded people. So basically to me, this, this research uh, is that like having that family of like-minded people. So I'm just joining, joining a family who will help me and guide me and question me. And with art, it's slightly different than from any other profession because you are on your own most of the time. You know, it's a very solitary occupation. So you, you need a, um, usually you form sort of a group of artists or something around you to help you and test your, so test your ideas. And, and if you want to write a book, it's, I think it's, it's hard to do it on your own. At least it would be hard for me to do it mm -hmm. on my own without, um, you know, other people reading it and, and, and helping you. So that, that's why, I, like, even if I wasn't doing research, I'd still be reading books in the evening. But that slightly focuses your attention. You know, you, you kind of, you know, you have the deadlines, you have to, um, and also it gives you access. Like for example, joining uh, an art school for doing like MA, PhD, you have, a, you have access to the collections, you have access to all the libraries in the world. You know, it's like, it opens up this, this new world to you. So I think, I think that's why. That's quite a nice um, sense that, natural curiosity opens up new worlds to you it's quite a nice nice philosophy towards life if you like yeah and i don't i've never find it hard to read and <laughs> and think and just wonder about things so it's just it's it feels good to me you always seem a very positive minded person very optimistic <laughs> maybe uh yeah <laughs> i think i think you have to what i was what i was wondering was if you do have any moments where you kind of uh not doubt yourself but kind of like um, maybe struggling through some ideas or, or thoughts do you have any um any kind of personal practice that you that you use to get yourself back on track or is it just a matter of like no just get stuck in it's an interesting question too um i i kind of use two things one of them I think about what I would like to happen what I would wish for and it might be far away and it's a complete dream and it's you know not something that's attainable but I just think of something and how I would feel in that moment at the time you know I can imagine myself I don't know going and visiting my family who's in Russia right now or imagining myself taking a walk in the mountains which are really beautiful or like paddle boarding when it's the ocean is still so i think of these like moments of good feeling and another thing that i do is just like kind of i enjoy looking at things i i just kind of stop for a moment and i start looking at things around me to kind of like ground me into into this moment and um i mean santa barbara is a beautiful place you're spoiled for it. we have a, a beautiful church just outside of our house so i just kind of look at things around me the present moment is always not bad you know if you just stop for a moment you know you kind of re reboot your system connecting with that sense of appreciation yes yeah appreciating what you have and as i said maybe looking yeah looking forward to other things to come and you get quite a, a 
a clear vision in your mind when you look forward like that i think so i i think i can almost like get myself into the feel of it i don't know how how it is but like i, I can almost you can almost paint it yes yeah i can always paint it <laughs> or i can you know because uh, i i actually got this tip from my kids but you know just like oh we are going for a walk and it's so they're so excited they're going for a walk we're so excited we're gonna go for a walk and you know the ki- kids they're just happy like any small thing you know are we having toast for lunch oh this is amazing <laughs> you know, you know, so. <laughs> what are you envisioning next what's next on your on your plans well it's a it's a very interesting time because i find that it's very hard to make any plans right now um and in a way as i said you kind of take day day by day i have decided that this is going to be my mindset for next year of not having a sort of plans or expectations because um well as you probably know um like public gatherings and art exhibitions involve public gatherings are not going to be happening I know that I cannot fly right now um, anywhere and then come back to America. So for that reason, there's like, there's no plans of travel, you know, there's no plans of Christmas. There is uh, like parents coming for Christmas. So there's, there's loads of things that uh, on professional and family and kind of personal level. And the only way I think I can kind of approach that is just to say, okay, let's just take it a day or a week at the time. The only consistency I, I can kind of have and I feel great relief is, is that every night I can read, I can, I can paint. And as I said, start doing kind of new body of work and yeah, and write. So um, for, for people listening, what, what's the best way of anyone to either look at your work or get in contact if they wanted to ask you any questions or something like that maybe? I very welcome questions. I actually very welcome questions and like discussions. I, I think it's, I don't know, I like, I love connecting to people and as I said, um, questioning ideas. Um, probably the best thing to do is through my website, which is yulialenin.com. And there's a contact form there if you want to reach out and I would really like that. <laughs> brilliant well thank you very much julia that's been awesome and eye-opening you're very welcome thank you for inviting me and thank you for listening you can find out more at anthonystoker.com Until next time.